I heard about a lady who had reached the age of 105, and at her birthday party at the retirement home, a number of reporters came along to cover this auspicious occasion. And one of the reporters asked this lady, what is your secret to living such a long life? And the lady replied, it's easy. My motto has always been to avoid arguments at all costs. I never argue with anybody. And the reporter was skeptical and he said, there must be some other explanation. Plenty of exercise, a sensible diet, genetics perhaps. I can't believe that you live to 105 simply by not arguing. To which the old lady responded, you know, you could be right. We're continuing with our sermon series, The Revelation of Jesus Christ. Read, hear, take to heart. And today we come to the most difficult passage in the most difficult book in all of Scripture, uh, Revelation chapter 20. There are a variety of different ways of interpreting these verses, and to those whose interpretation may differ from mine, all I can say is, you could be right. (laughs) The first 10 verses of Revelation chapter 20 have caused no end of debate and discussion and sadly even fights and division. And so I'm going to be a little bit naughty this morning and I'm going to try and sidestep some of the discussion and debate by simply preaching this passage instead of teaching it. If we were in a theological seminary, I would probably get all of my books and my articles and my charts out, and I'd outline all of the various theological positions, giving all of the pros and cons of each before outlining my own position. But seeing as we're in church, I'd prefer just to try and highlight what is clear in these verses, and in particular how these verses might apply to our own hearts and lives. So buckle up and let's have a look. If you've got a Bible with you, I invite you to turn with me to Revelation chapter 20, and we're going to read verses 1 through 10. John says, And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss, and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil, or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations any more until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who have part in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. In number, they are like the sand on the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. 
And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. And they will be tormented day and night, forever and ever. This is God's word. So just to remind ourselves whereabouts we are in the book of Revelation, and last time we were together, we had a look at the second part of Revelation chapter 19, which describes the final battle, the battle of Armageddon. We read in that chapter that the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gather together to make war against the white rider, our Lord Jesus, but they are defeated simply by Jesus' appearing. And then the beast and the false prophet are captured and thrown into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. And in the same way, in this chapter, we read about Satan gathering the nations together for battle, but how they are defeated and how the devil is thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, which raises an important question. Are there two final battles or just one? Well, down through the centuries, people have answered that question in different ways. There are some who read the book of Revelation sequentially. They read about a battle and Christ appearing in Revelation chapter 19, and then they read about a battle and a Christ appearing in chapter 20, and they see these as being two separate events. And then to complicate things further, in between these two events, we also have a thousand years or a millennium. Uh, The term comes from two Latin words, milli, a thousand, annum, a year, millennium, a thousand years, or millipede, milli, a thousand, pede, legs, uh, millipede, a thousand years, uh, a millennium. This might all be sounding a little bit familiar to you at this point. So some people who read Revelation sequentially see chapter 19 as describing the final return of Christ. So after a period of war and upheaval, Jesus appears, returns, and the thousand years begins. Satan is bound, the Christian dead are raised, and they rule with Christ on earth. And after the thousand years, Satan is released for a short while. He tries to destroy God's people and take over the world, but he himself fails and is destroyed. After this, you have the resurrection of the rest of the dead, the great white throne judgment, the final destruction of the wicked, and the new heaven and the new earth. So the theological term for this is pre-millennialism, because Jesus appears before, pre, the thousand years. Other people who read Revelation sequentially see chapter 20 as describing the final return of Christ. So in their understanding, there is a period of time before the end of the world where Satan is bound for a thousand years. Uh, This may be a literal thousand years or it may just be a long period of time. But during this time, before Jesus' return, God's kingdom comes on earth. The church of Jesus Christ grows stronger and stronger through the preaching of the gospel and the work of the Holy Spirit. Men and women and young people turn to Jesus and there is peace and prosperity and wholeness, shalom, before Jesus then finally returns. And the theological term for this is post-millennialism because Jesus returns post, after the thousand years. 
And then there are a group of people who don't understand the book of Revelation to be written sequentially. And you've probably have guessed from the way in which I've presented the book to you so far that I would probably fall into this category at the moment. To me, the book of Revelation describes the entire period between Christ's coming at Christmas and his final return, what the New Testament writers described as the last days. And the book describes the last days in a variety of different ways and from different angles. I've mentioned that the book is a little bit like a movie where you have flashbacks and flash-forwards where the camera zooms in and zooms out. But it's the same events being described over and over again. And I've presented some of the evidence for that as we've gone along. In fact, if you read carefully, you'll see that this last battle is described a number of times. Uh, Back in chapter 11, at the end of the seventh trumpet, at the end of chapter 16, at the end of the seventh bowl, in chapter 19, and here in chapter 20. So I read chapter 19 about Satan gathering the kings of the world together to fight against the Lord Jesus and how he's defeated and thrown into the lake of fire. And then I read chapter 20 about Satan being bound and then released and about his gathering the people together to fight against the Lord Jesus and being defeated and thrown into the lake of fire. And I think to myself, this is another action replay. This is another look at the same events from a different perspective. And the theological term for this is amillennialism or no millennium, which is a little unfortunate uh, because it's not that I don't believe in a millennium, but rather that I take it to be a symbol of the church age, as we'll see in a moment. Now again, I might be wrong. You may be right. (laughs) Just to say that good Christian people who hold tightly to God's word believe differently on these chapters. None of these views are without their problems. Otherwise, there would only be one clear view and not three. And our view on this should never divide us. You know, this thousand years reign of Jesus and his saints is only mentioned here in this one passage in all of Scripture. So I think we need to hold our beliefs lightly. And in one sense, ultimately, our beliefs about this don't matter. Uh, Jesus is coming again, and on that day, no premillennialist is going to turn to a postmillennialist and say, see, I was right. We'll all be too busy looking at Jesus at that point. I often joke and say I'm a pan-millennialist. It'll all pan out in the end. At the same time, though, our beliefs about Jesus' coming do matter because they affect how we act and how we pray. So the premillennial idea that the world is just going to get worse and worse and worse and then Jesus will come can be quite pessimistic and it can lead to apathy and inaction, especially around issues of social justice and evangelism. What's the point of being a good steward of the earth? What's the point of starting a reading program if everything is just going to get burned up anyway? Uh, pessimistic premillennialism doesn't take seriously enough the power of the gospel to transform lives and societies. Uh, we need to recapture the call to radical discipleship, faithful evangelism, and countercultural kingdom living. On the other hand, postmillennialism, the idea that the world is going to get better and better and better, can be too optimistic. 
It can fail to take into account the depth of human sin and evil. It's led some Christians to triumphalism and kingdom now or dominion theology, the idea that we can bring God's kingdom to earth right now, almost forcibly. And I think that that teaching sometimes elevates Christians above the sovereign God whom they're seeking to serve. And in trying to bring God's kingdom on earth by force, some Christians become very unchrist-like. Think of the Crusades in the 1100s, to give just one example. Maybe it would be helpful to view the last days as including both an increase in gospel expansion and an increase in persecution. If we take seriously both the power of the gospel and the fallenness of man. I'm not sure, but I suspect that that was what Jesus was describing in Matthew chapter 24, when he said, you'll be handed over to be persecuted and put to death. You'll be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. Many false prophets will appear and deceive many people and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Now, with all of that in mind, let me outline briefly what I think John is describing in these verses, particularly focusing in on the things that are clear and that apply practically to our own lives today. So as far as I understand, Revelation chapter 20, uh, John takes us back to the beginning again. and We have another action replay of the entire period between Christ's first coming at Christmas and his final return. I heard this past week that the soccer player, Pele, once scored a goal that was so spectacular that it was shown on Brazilian television every night for a year. (laughs) No one complained. Uh, Every time they saw it, they appreciated something different about the goal. And in replaying this drama, John wants us to see and notice some important things. He wants to tell us something important about Satan something about the saints, and something about our Savior. So firstly, John wants us to understand something about Satan. Uh, The vision begins with an angel coming down out of heaven, seizing Satan and chaining him in the abyss for a thousand years. I don't think that the number is to be taken literally, but rather it's a reference to a period of time. All the numbers that we've looked at in the book of Revelation so far have been symbols rather than statistics. But when did this happen? When was Satan bound? It certainly doesn't look like he's been bound. Well, if you turn to Matthew chapter 12, you read a very interesting incident in the life of Jesus. In that chapter, we read how Jesus heals a demon-possessed man who is blind and mute, And while the crowd are astonished, the Pharisees scoff and say, well, he's summoning the power of Satan in order to drive out demons. And Jesus replies, every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then can his kingdom stand? Or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? 
then he can plunder his house. Jesus is the one who comes and binds the strong man. And the Greek word translated here as ties up is the same as the Greek word in Revelation 20 that's translated as bound. It seems then that the coming of Jesus into the world was the time when Satan is bound. And of course we've seen previously that that took place supremely on the cross where Jesus triumphed over Satan and all his demonic forces. I think that interpretation fits with what we saw back in Revelation chapter 12. Remember that the coming of Jesus to earth, the child born of the woman clothed with the sun, results in Satan being thrown out of heaven and hurled to the earth. So it's the coming of Jesus into the world that results in Satan being bound. Just in passing, I think it's very significant that it's an angel who binds Satan. Remember back in chapter 12 that it was the angel, Michael, who fought against Satan and threw him out of heaven. And it's an important visual symbol that reminds us that the opposite of God is not Satan. Satan is not God's equal and opposite. He doesn't have equal knowledge or power to God. He is a created being, and so he can be defeated and bound by an angel, another created being. As I said, though, it certainly doesn't look like Satan has been bound. You've only got to listen to the news on the radio or watch it on television to see that it appears that Satan is alive and well on planet Earth. But have a look more closely at verse 3, because John says there is a specific reason that Satan is bound. The angel threw Satan into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. It's not that all of Satan's power is cut off, but only his ability to deceive the nations. Remember that up until the coming of Jesus, God's main interactions were with his people Israel. It's not that God wasn't at work in the other nations of the world. We just aren't told their story. We get hints of it here and there, but primarily in the Old Testament, God is the Holy One of Israel. But the coming of Jesus changes that. Jesus comes for all mankind. Remember Simeon in the temple when Joseph and Mary come and present the baby Jesus. The old man Simeon exclaims, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And in Jesus' ministry, we see how he breaks down those traditional barriers between Jews and Gentiles, how he speaks with Samaritans and Phoenicians and Greeks. As he ascends into heaven, Jesus tells his disciples to go and make disciples of all nations. And then in the book of Acts, we read how the gospel spreads throughout the known world of that time, literally from Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So during the entire period between Christ's first coming and his second coming, Satan is bound so that he can no longer deceive the nations and that they can come to faith in Christ. 
And every testimony of a person in Afghanistan or China or Ukraine or Somalia coming to faith in Christ is evidence that Satan has been chained so the nations are no longer deceived. And here, I think, is the first application of this passage to our own hearts and lives today, that we have confidence in this gospel of ours. We have confidence in sharing the gospel with others. We won't always be successful, that we know of, but you and I can confidently go into all the world and as we go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything that Jesus has commanded us. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for the salvation of everybody who believes. So who are we going to share it with in this week that lies ahead? John tells us something else that takes place during the thousand years between Jesus' first coming and his return, verses 4 to 6. He says, I saw thrones on which were seated those who'd been given authority to judge, and I saw the souls of those who'd been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or his image and not received his mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who have part in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. So John's told us something about the activity and the status of Satan during the last days. And now he tells us something very important about the status and activity of the saints. That's you and me. Remember that John is writing to a group of people who were despised and persecuted, a minority in the Roman Empire. And here John writes to them to tell them of their true status, of who they really are. Not contemptible or laughable or despised, but those who live and reign with Christ, which has important implications for how they live their lives. Frank Craddock was a Bible college professor. And he told the story of how he and his wife were once on holiday and they were sat in a restaurant enjoying a quiet meal together when suddenly a distinguished-looking white-haired gentleman came over and introduced himself. He asked Frank what he did for a living. And Frank said, I'm a preacher. And the man said, well, great. I've, I've got a great preacher story for you. And he sat down at their table and he said, I'm Ben Hooper. I was born an illegitimate child. I never knew who my father was, and that was extremely hard for me. The boys at school used to call me names, and they made fun of me all of the time. When I walked down the main street of our little town, I always felt people looking at me and asking the terrible question, I wonder who's the father of that little boy. And so I spent a lot of time by myself. I didn't have any friends. One day, a new preacher came to town, and everyone was talking about how good he was. I'd never gone to church before, but one Sunday, I thought I'd go and hear him preach. He was so good a preacher that I kept on going back. Each time, I would go late, and I would leave early, so I wouldn't have to talk to anybody. 
Then one Sunday, I was so caught up in the preacher's message that I forgot to leave. Before I knew what was happening, he had said the closing prayer and the service was over. I tried to get out of the church, but people were already filling the aisles and I couldn't get past them. Suddenly, I felt a heavy hand on my shoulder. When I turned around, that big, tall preacher was looking down at me and asking, What's your name, boy? Whose family are you? Whose son are you? When I heard that question, I just shook. But before I could say anything, he said, Why? I know who your family is. I know whose son you are. There's a distinct family resemblance. You're one of God's sons. He said, You know, mister, those simple words changed my life. And with that, he got up and left. The waitress was standing nearby, and Frank motioned to her, and he said, Who was that? And the waitress replied, That's Ben Hooper, the two-term governor of Tennessee. Who we understand ourselves to be affects how we feel about ourselves and how we act in this world. And when we understand who we are in Christ, it changes how we think about ourselves and opens up a whole new world of possibility. Now, at this point, I'm a little less sure of what these verses are referring to, but I don't think it affects the application of these verses to our lives. When John speaks here about those who'd been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus and how they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years, he could be speaking about all of the Christian martyrs during the church age, that although they are despised by the world, condemned and put to death, they wake up in the presence of Jesus and they reign with him in heaven until his return. And again, that would be a tremendous encouragement to John's readers because they're about to watch their fellow brothers and sisters be arrested, treated as criminals, condemned by the courts, laughed at by the world, and put to death in the most awful ways. But in contrast to that, John gives the true picture of who they truly are in Christ. But it's also possible that John here is referring to all Christians When he speaks about God's people coming to life, moving from death to life, when he speaks about the first resurrection, he could be referring to what we would call Christian conversion. Listen to how Paul describes Christian conversion in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you've been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. What a, what a glorious picture of who we are in Christ. I don't know what kind of week you've had, but that is amazing that we are raised up and that we are seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. What does that mean? Well, well, notice that there's an already and a not yet in this passage. We're seated with Christ now, but there is a fullness that will only be completed in the coming ages. 
And I think it's important to interpret Ephesians chapter 2 in the light of Ephesians chapter 1. There Paul says that God raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that can be invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything, for the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. So this passage tells us that it is Jesus alone who rules and reigns over everything. Uh, We don't share in his rule and reign and authority to exactly the same extent. And the passage also emphasizes Jesus' power and authority over the rulers and powers and dominions. In other words, the satanic powers. So that when Paul says that we are seated with Christ in the heavenly realms, he doesn't mean that we can command or demand anything and everything. Only Jesus can do that. Rather, he's saying that by being raised with Christ, we too have power and authority over Satan. And that has some very important applications to our own lives today. As an 18-year-old, I spent a year in the South African Defence Force. I I served as a medic because I was a religious objector and refused to carry a rifle. It was an interesting year. I learned a lot of Afrikaans, most of which is unrepeatable. And uh, I often used to think to myself, well, if this is how they treat us, how will they treat the enemy? (laughs) There was one Afrikaans term which I couldn't translate, but I knew what it meant. Those of you who did national service will know that at any time, day or night, your corporal could come up to you, and if he wasn't happy with you, he would say, suck. And that meant that you would have to get down on the ground and do some push-ups. Now imagine for a moment that this week I'm walking in the Howard Center with my family, and who should I come across but my old corporal from the army? And he sees me, and he recognizes me too, and he comes up to me and he says, Parker, suck. I would laugh in his face. (laughs) Why? Because in January 1992, I was discharged from the army and I moved from being a soldier to being a civilian. I moved out of the army into civilian life. And at that moment, that corporal lost all power over my life. Before that, for a year, he had almost absolute power. Now he has none whatsoever. And if in the Howard Center that corporal said to me, suck, and I did, it would be because I chose to do that, not because I was obligated to do that. And in the same way, my dying and being raised with Christ, seated in the heavenly realms, means that I move out of the control of sin and Satan and move into the control of the Lord Jesus. Satan has no power over me unless I choose to give in to what he says. Before I was a Christian, I didn't have a choice. But the power of sin is broken, and I can choose to follow and obey Christ. You and I are delivered from the penalty of sin through Jesus' sacrificial death for us. We're also delivered from the power of sin through Jesus' defeat of Satan. Unfortunately, we're not delivered from the presence of sin. Not yet. So John gives us then this wonderful picture of who we are in Christ, those who reign with him. 
It's also important to remind ourselves that in the book of Revelation, consistently we're told that Christ reigns from the cross. He rules as a lamb who was slain, not as a lion. And if we seek to reign with him, we must also be prepared to suffer and die with him, to not love our lives so much as to shrink from death. So John wants us to know that between Jesus' first coming and his second coming, Satan is bound so that the gospel can be preached in the world and men and women can respond. And secondly, that God's saints, you and I, live and reign with him. But thirdly in this passage, and very quickly, John wants us to understand something about our Savior. John tells us that at the end of history, Satan is released for a short time. Verse 7, when the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. In number, they are like the sand on the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They'll be tormented day and night, forever and ever. So at the end of the church age, Satan is released and he deceives the nations. Uh, Gog and Magog are mentioned in Ezekiel 38 and 39. They're ungodly nations who come against God's people, Israel. Satan then gathers the nations to fight against God's people, but he's ultimately defeated by Christ's appearing. And this picture seems to be what Paul describes in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Uh, in that letter, Paul is writing to Christians who've been told that the day of the Lord has already come, and obviously they're a bit confused and concerned. And so Paul writes and says, the day of the Lord will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. And now you know what is holding him back so that he may be revealed at the proper time. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who now holds it back will continue to do so till he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. It seems to be the same pattern. Satan is bound, the man of lawlessness is held back. Satan is released, the man of lawlessness is revealed. Satan fights against God's people and is destroyed by the splendor of his coming. And John wants us to know today that Jesus reigns. He reigns right now. We spent a lot of time looking at how God's saints reign now, but notice that John specifically says they reign with Christ Right now, in the midst of the trouble and the sorrow and the chaos of our world, Jesus reigns. He reigns over the circumstances of your life and my life right now. He is sovereignly in control. It's not that Jesus is coming to reign. He reigns now 
and his appearance will reveal the fact that he reigns before the end finally comes. I love what the Canadian pastor Daryl Johnson has to say about this passage. And with this we will close. He says, look at Jesus. Whatever the millennium is, it is about Jesus. And millennial madness is made manageable by focusing on the millennial man. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Keep your eyes on the one who has bound the evil one. Keep your eyes on the one who causes us to come to life. Keep your eyes on the one who reigns over all authority and calls us to join him. Keep your eyes on the God-man who one day is going to release the evil one for one last desperate and ultimately futile attempt to win, who will then finally destroy the enemy and all his cohorts. Keep your eyes on the one who is, even now, bringing into being a whole new creation which he calls his bride. The important number is not 1,000. The important number is one. When we woke up this morning, we were one day closer to the day when Jesus will finally have his way. Amen.